You finally decided to learn how to ice skate, so you ordered the essentials every aspiring ice skater needs. A nice pair of blades, a shiny new helmet, and a good set of knee pads. And you used your Bank of America Cash Rewards credit card, choosing to earn 3% cash back on online shopping, which you put those rewards towards an essential piece of post-skating recovery, a heating pad. Visit bankofamerica.com slash more rewarding to apply now. Copyright 2020, Bank of America Corporation. What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golver with the Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Michael the Pod Pina. Michael, we have NBA playoff games to dissect. We are recording this on a Thursday, so we won't have Thursday night's results between uh, the Blazers and the Lakers and the Thunders and, and the Rockets, but we've sure got plenty to get through uh, from the first few days of action, we've had one team, the Philadelphia 76ers, basically check themselves out of the postseason. They're already halfway home, I believe. Um, <laughs> we've got some other teams emerging as potential championship contenders. We've got panic among the number one seeds, all sorts of good stuff. Michael, I want to start with uh, something that I hinted at on the last episode, which is the Lakers fans are not the biggest fans of the pod Pina right now. They're Mm -hmm. not down with MPP. And Tyler summed it up, all right? He said, Dear Michael Pina, there is still time for you to repent for your scorching take that the Trailblazers are going to upset the Lakers. The king loves his sinners and offers absolution for those who confess. Confess that you are not an objective NBA reporter, but a green-blooded Celtics fan. Confess that you have no objectivity when it comes to the Lakers. Confess that you are a prisoner of the moment. Confess that you're still salty about LeBron's 45-point masterpiece in 2012 against your Celtics. Physicists are still not sure whether or not your takes are hotter than the surface of the sun, and I have submitted grant applications to the National Science Foundation to secure funding to study this. Confess, Michael Pina, and be forgiven, or your dear Rockets will be struck down by the thunder. So, Michael, he sent this in, obviously, before Game 1, which did not go the Lakers' way whatsoever. Uh, The Blazers take that one. Uh, Lakers can't get any shooting from their supporting cast. LeBron puts a massive stat line, but, you know, ultimately was outplayed by uh, Damian Lillard down the stretch. Anthony Davis took a lot of heat from various corners for maybe being a little bit too passive and, and not quite... Um, in beast mode against Portland's front line. So I imagine you're ready to come and, and really just swing back as, as hard as possible against Tyler and the other Laker haters out there. Michael, would you like to take a victory lap now? Would you like to delay it um, You know, later in the series? I think it's you and Charles Barkley right now who are the two loudest anti-Lakers voices in the world. That's good company to be in, Michael. So what do you have to say for yourself? I was about to bring up Charles Barkley and just say I'm not I'm not quite ready to take out the broom and start sweeping my apartment with it. Uh, but I, I will say that nothing that I saw from the Lakers in that game particularly surprised me. Uh, their offense was atrocious. It was the fourth worst offensive outing that they've had all season long. Uh, and two of those other games were earlier this month. So the there's clearly a problem. And, uh, you know, I did not... I did not expect them to flip the switch. They're not that talented of a team. They have not proven anything. Uh, It's basically just LeBron James and Danny Green, who have championship experience on that roster. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm 
still confident in picking the Blazers because their offense hums. They have Dame Lillard, who's still the hottest player in the bubble. And I think there are some adjustments, uh, one or two minor ones that the Lakers might be able to make. But at the end of the day, like if you do not have three-point shooting that the opponent respects uh, in this day and age, then you can't really win. And right now, the Lakers do not have three-point shooting that their opponent respects. So diplomatic, Michael. Come on. I was hoping for some more <laughs> haymakers from you. Maybe we'll, maybe they'll come out as we get going. You're just getting warmed up. And my takeaway from game one, and I wrote this for the Washington Post, is that you know LeBron made the comment, the Blazers aren't your typical eight seed. And I believe that's true. I mean, you look at the guys that they're welcoming mm-hmm. back from a health standpoint, you look at the momentum that they're carrying right now, you look at Damian Lillard just playing out of this world, you know, uh, seeding game MVP in the bubble. It is fair to say that they're not a typical eight seed. But I think when you look at the Lakers, they are not playing like a one seed in the bubble whatsoever. Like the kinds of things we expect from uh, one seeds would be um, control and poise in clutch situations. And you see they they blow multiple defensive assignments, um, you know, giving up wide open three pointers to Portland um, in game one. We would expect them to come out with a you know a vengeance and a bang in game one of the playoffs, right? Um, instead, they get way behind uh, early on that game. Portland kind of takes it to them. We would expect them to have a really balanced and versatile offensive attack, not being overly reliant upon certain players. You look back at the most recent champions, you know, uh, whether it's Toronto, Golden State, um, you know, even Cleveland itself back in 2016, there was much better offensive balance and more proven weapons on those teams than there are on these Lakers. And so, you know, you add all of those things up. Uh, you know, it was a, a performance. I'm not sure if they left that one panicked, but I did sense some concern and just uh, some down body language, some frustration. Um, I think some maybe even confusion or, or looking like they were surprised, kind of got punched in the mouth and didn't expect it. And I think it winds up really putting, it goes back to LeBron, doesn't it? Doesn't he have to kind of take control of this series, find a way to um, you know, get the Lakers offensive going, whether that's himself um, just going to the basket more often, whether that's himself working out of the post and trying to generate offense that way, whether it's, you know, him and AD just doing a two-man game, play after play after play after play to, to hope you can generate enough offense there. Um, I'm not sure he's going to be able to find the help no matter how long he looks at guys like Kyle Kuzma, Danny Green, and Contavious Caldwell-Pope. Like, I think if, if that's your game plan, hey, we need those guys to step up, um, that's pretty rough, and that's not sustainable over the course of an entire postseason run, let alone a series against a team that's really locked in and playing together like Portland. Yeah, that's really well said. And when I mentioned adjustments that they can make, I, I think you know, I think LeBron to the post is the most obvious one. He really didn't post up at all in that game, and when he did, it was kind of a disaster. You know, they tried to run some pick and roll with. Uh, with him and AD and Portland is just like aggressively packing the paint like they are not you know there was one or two instances where AD got free on a roll and got to the rim and and good for him Um, but I think for the majority every time they tried to run a, a, a pick and roll in the half court you know Portland is just like everybody on the team has two feet in the paint and they don't care about Kyle Kuzma they don't care about Alex Caruso they don't care about Marquise Morris uh like it's just you can play AD at the five which is the number one adjustment that I think a lot of people are saying that the Lakers can make I I personally just don't think it matters if your guards and your wings aren't aren't good (laughs) and 
right now the Lakers are really struggling in that department. So, uh, you know, there are a couple adjustments that you can make. But fundamentally, Ben, I just look at this roster and I think an emailer sent something in similar where it's just it's constructed because the way it is in a detrimental fashion because Anthony Davis did not want to play center in the first place. So you have JaVal McGee, you have Dwight Howard, you have, uh, you know, DeMarcus Cousins, who they signed uh, uh, in the offseason, in the last offseason. And so that's just, that's trouble. Like, you need three-point shooting. And it's kind of remarkable that they had the success that they did during the regular season, and none of these flaws really presented themselves. But these are real issues, and when you're in the thick of a playoff series, it's kind of too late to to correct them. Yeah, I mean, when you look at their regular season run, they were just in a real joyride and groove. I mean, they were playing mm-hmm. with awesome momentum at home, and so much of what the Lakers were doing was almost like riding that Staples Center crowd. It was truly fun to be at a Lakers game for the first time in my five years covering the Lakers in Los Angeles. Like, it was a show. There were celebrities courtside. LeBron was feeding off of it. Nobody milks a crowd and plays to the crowd like LeBron. And I think he's feeling the absence of a crowd more than any other player in the bubble. I think two things can be true. Every team has to adjust to the bubble conditions. That is true. And that's what everyone screams back at, um, you know, the, the Lakers every time that they raise these issues. That can be true. But also this idea that, like, at this point of his career, um, you know, LeBron has been so famous and so long for his entire adult life that he is just conditioned to receive that kind of positive feedback in a way that most players aren't. And when it's not there, I do think it impacts him more than it impacts a lot of other people. And he is showing it. You know, I think um, uh, when you look at just how down he was after game one, how he's kind of searching, how they asked him, well, what did you do in between the seeding round and the playoffs? And he was like, absolutely nothing. There's nothing to do here. Um, That's not the typical LeBron that we're used to. Certainly not during the playoffs when he's so usually just laser focused, locked in, super competitive, only caring about, you know, trying to win. It was it was grumbles, Michael. And we we just don't usually hear that. To me, that was a red flag. Now, I think ultimately he is going to have heard, you know, schmucks like us talking for 48 hours. He's going to have read and listened to all the peanut takes. And at some point, you know, the (laughs) the um, you know, the competitive desire is going to kick back in and we're going to see a better version of him. But uh, what scares me with their shooting is how they're passing up open looks and double clutching a lot. You know, it's the it's the pump fake party, as Lee Ellis of the starters would call it. That's a red flag. I mean, though that means those guys are not confident. They don't feel like they have trust in themselves or they don't feel that LeBron has trust in them. You heard Frank Vogel even say, well, LeBron would have had 20 assists if the guys would have made shots. Not sure that was a helpful comment. You know, if I'm one of those other players, it's like, oh, I see how it is. You know, we're all just out here trying to get him numbers uh, and, and letting him down. It's kind of a tough framing on that one. So uh, I think what they really need is Mike Miller on a Zoom call to just get pre- <laughs> preach them the let it fly mentality. You know, South Dakota's uh, sensation Mike Miller, longtime NBA player uh, with that you know let it fly catchphrase. I think mm-hmm. they need a little let it fly, except for KCP. For KCP, just don't let it fly. Just hold on to the basketball. Don't shoot. Everybody else, let it fly. Maybe Mike Miller can get through to him. I like how this is the solution. Um, I, you know, 
I well, saw... it, it goes back to what you said on right. the, the, the Blazers' defense. If you don't stretch that defense, it's going to be ugly and too inefficient inside. You have to pull those guys out of the paint to some degree so LeBron's got the driving lanes, in part because he has not looked as quick and nimble and um, you know explosive off the bounce uh, in the bubble as he did before the shutdown, right? So you got to give him a little bit more room to work with. If you just compare visually LeBron attacking the paint to James Harden attacking the paint or Luka attacking the paint, those are probably the three premier ball-handling playmakers in the league yeah. right now. If you just put pictures side-by-side side of those three guys, LeBron's seeing twice as many bodies, sometimes three times as many bodies as in the paint as those other two guys are because their offenses are much more um, you know, spread out because they've got guys who can shoot. So you've got to get those shooters going or they're in trouble. You know, what you just said in comparing uh, LeBron with Harden and Luka made me think about how LeBron really didn't a- like access the three-point line on his own to generate offense in game one at all. And he really hasn't done that too much in the bubble to begin with. Like, He's really just trying to get everybody else involved. His assist rate in game one was 72.7, which is just like, I don't even know how to process that number. (laughs) But when you're like, I think about Harden and if he was on this team, how he would respond. And he's not just putting his head down and trying to get to the basket and get to the free throw line. He's going to do that a little bit. But primarily, he's going to dribble 45 times per possession and launch step backs. And he's going to try to get to the free throw line and draw fouls that way. And he's going to drill some of those shots. And he's going to try to uh, you know open up the defense by himself in that way. And like... I don't think the answer is necessarily for LeBron to do that. He does have the step back three in his repertoire. But at the end of the day, I just I I, I kind of don't think that we should be blaming him primarily for their woes. I mean, I look at the I look at the supporting cast, I look at the front office to put this team together, and to be honest, I look at Anthony Davis, who really like I don't know. He, you know, we talked about LeBron posting up. AD didn't really post up at all either. And when he did, uh, when he did get the ball, you know, high post, even low post a little bit, he just, like, he takes so long to get going. He's not quick uh, into his movements. He lets the double team come and then he kicks out. It's just very passive basketball. And when he does go quick, it's usually like a contested long two. Sometimes he'll draw a foul that way. But, like, that's not... Like, this is the playoffs. Like, you can't... That's just not what... Especially with uh, Gabriel guarding him. This is just not... It's not the uh, the way he should be approaching his own offensive game. For sure. Look, let's, let's wind back to October. And I'm telling you, game one of the playoffs, AD and LeBron are the one seed. AD is being guarded by Wenyan Gabriel. And you're anticipating what stat line? 45 and 20? I mean, <laughs> what, is, what does that look like? And... It's not just about the numbers with with Davis. It's really about the impact and um, how he's getting it, like you're describing. And, you know, he spent last summer working a lot on the perimeter. He wanted to be a little bit more of a, you know, a dribble guy into his moves. He wanted to be more comfortable stepping out to the three-point shot. Um, You know, and I I do wonder, did all that work and all that attention maybe distract a little bit from some of the other areas that he could be, you know, truly uh, devastating for opposing defenses. A lot of the complaints that I'm hearing about Anthony Davis this week give me real flashbacks to some of the complaints about LaMarcus Aldridge uh, from some of his, you know, playoffs past. And that's not the company that, uh, you know, people expected Anthony Davis to be in. And 
I think he could play better. I he's actually had some moments here in the bubble where it's like, oh wow, like this is the talented guy we've been talking about for the last three or four years, where you know he's he's giving you very few uh, options of stopping him, and he's just an overwhelming force. That's the version they need here uh, going forward in the series. They're in some serious jeopardy. And just to underscore that, Michael, I want to read an email from my buddy Caleb. He writes. My name is Caleb, and I'm 13 years old. I watched the Lakers play the Blazers, and the way Dame and CJ uh, took over the end of that game, I have to pick the Blazers in four. By the way, <laughs> I'm loving the inside the bubble coverage, Ben. Caleb, I love the take. So, Michael, it's you, Caleb, and Charles Barkley together on the uh, on the Blazers bandwagon. Um, that seems like really good company to me, Michael. I think you're probably feeling pretty good about yourself. Um, let's take this from the Portland side. Isn't the scary part for the Lakers that the Blazers didn't even shoot that well? They didn't even play that well offensively. The game was played in L.A. style, wasn't it? It wasn't the big shootout that Portland had been involved in um, during their bubble rounds. And yet, in the fourth quarter, when it came time to execute, uh, Portland was right there ready to do it. I think four different Blazers players, Dame, C.J., Carmelo, and Gary Trent Jr., all hit three-pointers in a 19-6 to closing stretch. They actually played really tough and, and stout uh, defense down the stretch, which I did not expect uh, from these Blazers. And um, they just executed better on both ends. Um, I guess, uh, you know, if you're Portland, like, are you, they were feeling good about game one, obviously, but I don't think that they were feeling like they stole it. I think they just felt like they won it and they still feel like they can play better. Yeah, I, I 100% agree. I mean, you shoot six for 10 from the three point line in the fourth quarter there's a good chance you're going to win the basketball game. And we should really talk about Dame for a second, who, I mean, some of the shots this guy is hitting, like that one where he goes, he's going to his left, uh, pulls up from like 30 feet with AD with a late contest in AD's face, and it just drills it. Like, I, I honestly don't even know what else there is to say about Dame. And, I mean, if you thought he was cool before, like, the fact that in the middle of crunch time, he's coming back to the other end, retreating to defense and just starts like shimmying and dancing. Like he is, he's just on a different planet right now. And I gotta say, I love that because I've spent so much time in Oakland um, for the Golden State Warriors playoff runs these last five years. And mm-hmm. I could just imagine there was a lot of people out there being like, that was hella cool. Oh man, it's so hyphy. Like just the, the <laughs> Bay Area vibe around Dame in that moment was just, amazing it's just funny and um you know i think he he wound up you know giving a little bit of love to too short right in his post-game interview with jared Mm -hmm. greenberg as well so nice moment for for the town out there um but yeah look i mean if i had told you at the start of this season portland's the eighth seed lakers are the one seed portland's winning game one and dame is dancing in lebron's face wouldn't you have thought like that seems like a terrible idea like what are you doing but that's not the vibe coming away from game one it's like they're poking the bear but they're not afraid of the bear the bears you know been tranquilized or something (laughs) no and i i what i really loved is that like terry stotts is just getting away with playing hassan whiteside and yusuf nurkic at the same time like in 2020 like what is even happening it's insane Great point, because Thaddeus emailed, and you you referenced this earlier. He says, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the Lakers' loss illuminated the flaws in their team. The Lakers just proved how poorly they built around LeBron. They got AD, then followed it up by signing JaVale, DeMarcus Cousins, and Dwight Howard. 
That's a legitimate bleeping joke. So Thaddeus is not happy. <laughs> but um, is that the counter for LA? Do they have to go small um, and just ditch some of these center minutes? Um, you know, in that case, you're actually letting Portland off the hook and they can, you know, stay away from their two center lineups. But those two center lineups are out there because the Lakers insist on playing one of their big guys who is definitely not going to be a floor stretcher. You know, Dwight and JaVale are basically, you know, they have they have a, like a three-foot range. Their range is as long as their arm, right? Um, and that lets Portland get away with a lot. Yeah, and I think when you play two bigs, obviously the, the reason that you can't in today's league is on the defensive end. One of those guys usually needs to be at the three-point line. But against the Lakers, that's really not a necessity. So you can get away with it. You can attack the glass and you can dominate in different ways. Um, I mean, if you're the Lakers and you want to go small, this is where you get in trouble. Like the the minutes are like you got to lean on all of a sudden Dion Waiters and J.R. Smith, two guys who Frank Vogel pretty much refused to play in game one, which really is super telling. If I was Vogel, I might be playing like a six-man rotation. I'm not even kidding. Like, there's so many guys <laughs> on that roster that I do not want to see touching the court in a, in a serious playoff moment. And that's where they are right now. Um, I don't know how you get away with six. Maybe you go seven, possibly eight. But, like, there's a bunch of guys. Um, it's tricky. And, and that's the thing with them going small. This dream idea that everybody had uh, in the fall about, oh, LeBron, AD, and three shooters, it sounds great, but they're just three shooters sh- short right now. Yeah, I don't know the where shooters? they find them. Exactly, exactly. Um, so, yeah, I just, there's just not, there's not answers. And let me ask you a quick question, Ben. Over under uh, three games that J.R. Smith will appear in in this series? Um, I think he will appear in at least three games. Um, but, I mean, that's a pretty low standard. There's lots of weird ways for guys to get in. I don't want to write the Lakers off completely here because I think LeBron can play better. Mm-hmm. Anthony Davis can play better. They did set the pace and tone. Um, and I just think that they need to be force-feeding positive feedback to Danny Green from the 2014 title run. Just show yeah. him all his videos of, like, the five three-pointer games. That's To me, that's kind of the X factor. And, look, I mean, people are going to point to Kuzma Personally, I don't think I've ever trusted Kyle Kuzma for a second. Um, it's possible that you know, he will make me look bad. I just feel like a lot of this comes back to Danny Green. If they can get some spacing with Danny Green and Contavious Caldwell-Pope can just shoot a little bit better. By the way, Michael, a couple of years ago, I coined KCP as Contavious Can't Play, and I'm feeling pretty good about that one right now. That's a great nickname. I like that a lot. And before the bubble began, I wrote this column about uh, you know, making 46 predictions about the upcoming playoffs. And one of them was basically that Danny Green uh, will have to be LA's third most important player. Totally uh, agree. That is just not going to happen. Um, he looks like I, I really don't like saying people are washed up and all that. But like, LeBron is kind of looking him off when he's even when he's wide open. Like that started to happen in that Portland game, and I think it was right after maybe his like second air ball. Or <laughs> it's like uh, so, you know, you have Isaiah Thomas, uh, former Celtic great, tweeting that Danny Green's foot speed just like can't keep up with anyone right now, and it's just it, it it's that's that's accurate analysis. Um, I don't know where you go if if Danny Green is not the answer. 
maybe, you know, we haven't really mentioned Rondo's name yet. He's going to come back. But when Rondo, and I say this as like one of the biggest Rondo fans of all time, if Rondo in 2020 is the answer to you winning the NBA championship. He's not. It's it's not. It's not going to happen. So you can kind of cross that off the list. Um, I, after all this talk, I'm now waiting for LeBron to go out and put 45 up tonight. So we'll see if that takes place or if it doesn't. Um, I do think that their salvation comes from him finding ways to just unlock Portland's defense, finding ways to get, you know, uh, bully ball stuff going towards the basket, living on the free throw line and just sort of de-emphasizing, um, you know, the, the need for help from some of these questionable pieces. And hopefully those guys can just chip in just enough, a little bit more than they did in game one. And then uh, maybe the Lakers will look like a different team. I thought in general, their energy and their defense was pretty solid. They just had a couple brain farts in the fourth quarter. And again, it goes back to that's not what we think of for a number one seed. You know, we think of uh, you know higher standards for that. So we'll see if they can get back there. I do feel like they're a little bit um, like the Napoleon Dynamite character, just living in the past slightly, Michael. Back in March, we had this, you know, Rihanna used to come to our games. It was amazing. Um <laughs> And right now, they're just like, we're in the bubble. No one's checking for us. It's awful. And I, I think they need to just let all that mental baggage go, mm-hmm. reset. And I include LeBron in that. Just stop talking about the bubble environment. Stop talking about any of the other um, conditional factors here. And just focus on who. You're a much better player than you've showed so far in the bubble. And get back to it. All right. That's my personal pep talk for LeBron. I'm sure he's really excited to hear that before uh, before game two. Let's shift gears to the other number one seed, Michael. Jimmy emailed in to say 35 points, 14 rebounds, and four assists. Boy, Giannis went off. Oh, wait a minute. What? That stat line wasn't from Giannis. If I'm reading this correctly, that's actually Nikola Vucevic against Giannis in a game one win for Orlando. How could this be? Uh, then Kyle followed up with another email. Just checking in on you, Ben. The Bucks dropped game one to the Magic, and I can see you weeping openly on your walk to the Heat Pacers game. Hopefully that heat and humidity allowed you a plausible excuse for your tear-soaked polo shirt. Boy, Kyle, it sounds like he's uh, he set up some sort of a Truman Show uh, camera, Michael. He's watching me on a video feed somewhere. So I'm excited, actually, for all these, uh, you know, for all these Magic fans to have their day. I think that game one was basically their Super Bowl. That's how it kind of felt. Everything went very well. I do mm. think that there's some stuff they can continue to, uh, you know, have success with going forward. I don't know. I still feel less panicky about Milwaukee than I do about the Lakers, but I'm judging from your um, condescending hmm that you feel differently. <laughs> No, I I think you should put a little more respect on Orlando's name, but I'm I agree with you that like Milwaukee, like I feel like so- certain aspects of that game were a total aberration, and you know Gary Clark just coming in shooting twelve threes, making four of them. Uh, you know, obviously Vucevic's line was very impressive, and then on the other end. Milwaukee, you know, Chris Middleton didn't really show up. Brooke Lopez didn't really show up. Uh, you know, they got some of the threes that they normally hit. They just didn't fall. Orlando was was piping hot, uh, particularly down the stretch. So, like, th- it was kind of an aberration. But then again, Aaron Gordon didn't even play 
And maybe that's like a good thing for Orlando in a, in a weird way where it kind of just discombobulates how you have to guard them because there's more three-point shooting, respectable three-point shooting on the floor and you don't have to really deal with the ways that he can kind of stifle an offense by himself with the dribbling and the pull-up twos and all that. So maybe that was kind of like a little blessing in disguise for Orlando, but I mean, fundamentally, zooming out, Milwaukee is going to be fine uh, in this series. I don't see them losing game two, uh, which will be played later today. So by the time you listen to this, hopefully, or uh, hopefully, yes, I am right and they have tied the series. But uh, but no, I'm not I'm not nearly as concerned about Milwaukee as I am about the Lakers. So here's where the concern comes in for me. I was talking to an executive about this down here in the bubble, and basically the premise is bubble basketball is not the same as the regular season for some Mm -hmm. of the reasons we've been describing. Teams are very comfortable shooting the basketball in these gyms. Lots of players have called it, uh, you know, shooter's gym. We've seen, we saw uh, Orlando shoot the ball very well in game one and basically turn a lot of their attack over to that, uh, you know, just perimeter shooting uh, with, with Vucevic and, and, and other guys, uh, you know, Terrence Ross and, and Gary Clark and all these different guys. Um, if bubble ball is really uh, premised upon more uh, three-point shooting efficiency than regular season basketball and scoring is up, which it has been, and you don't have home court advantage to limit you know, your opponent ro- role players like uh, teams in the past, if your defensive strategy is built around conceding threes and protecting the paint at all costs, does that now make you kind of on the wrong side of history? Does that math formula change? And this is something that we kind of predicted a couple months ago could potentially happen. Now, it could have also gone the other way. If nobody could shoot in these gyms and everybody was rusty from the four-month layoff, having the Bucks' defensive style where you're just giving up all these threes would actually be a great thing, right? It's like, you know, daring everyone to, to beat you from outside and just watching the, uh, the clank fest. Mm-hmm. But it's been the opposite. And... I guess if there's a cause for concern if you're Milwaukee, it's, look, I mean, Orlando is not the world's most potent offense. At least they weren't during the regular season. I think Milwaukee beat them by an average of 17 points per game over the four regular season games. But there are going to be some teams down the road that can really shoot the basketball quite well. And if you're not adjusting your defense in any way, if you're just kind of playing that same strategy that you use during the regular season in the bubble, that could really kind of, uh, you know, have the math formula work against you. And this executive told me, like, look, I wouldn't play that strategy just in general. Um, Philosophically, he didn't like it during the regular season either, even though Milwaukee had amazing results. But he (laughs) said he definitely wouldn't play it in the bubble because of the way the shooting performance has taken place. And he was basically recommending, look, they got to shake this thing up and just kind of rethink some of their principles here because otherwise they're just going to get sniped. What do you think about this argument, this argumentation? Uh, that's very funny, I think, to suggest that our, uh, sorry, that Milwaukee should completely alter their highly successful defensive formula based off one game against the Orlando Magic. I'm not going to really go there just yet. And a lot of their personnel is built for that system. Uh, you know, obviously you could go small and you could switch and I think hold up pretty fine. But Brooke Lopez is not going to be able to switch for 30 minutes. And he's a really big part of how they play. And his rim protection is huge. So, I mean, there will be yeah, games. He got destroyed in game one, by the way. Right. Yes, I mean, he was he like did. a nothing on offense. And Vucevic just torched him. So that, to me, is kind of the central 
matchup concern, like you kind of have to tell Brooke Lopez, like you better show up in game two, bro. You better do it for all the Disney characters that you love. Like you can't be letting Mickey and Goofy (laughs) down. Like it's time to really show up and step up and play a lot better. You know, get back to how he was looking during the seeding games because, you know, at some point that's where you do have to shift things up. Like if he can't get out to Vucevic and he's just raining threes, you have to think about different lineup looks, don't you? Yeah, and... I also think that there is a lot of value in just taking away the rim, which is what Milwaukee does better than anybody. And there will be games where Vucevic does not hit all of those pick and pop threes, where he does not make five of them and where Gary Clark doesn't make four threes. And, uh, you know, Terrence Ross doesn't hit some of those really tricky shots off of pin downs and you don't foul three point shooters as much as you did. Um, I think that it could also, the strategy could also go the other way where, uh, Milwaukee could just shoot a lot better than it did. And so much of our analysis ultimately comes down to how teams perform behind the three-point line, which is uh, kind of a bummer and something that it's, it's just like a different conversation. But I just go back to like, this team has Giannis, this team has Chris Middleton, this team is uh, knows how it wants to play, can really execute. It's not like they didn't execute their scheme. Um And over the long haul, they have faith in their scheme and in their coaching staff. So I just I can't get too worked up if they if they lose in game two uh, under the same in in the same way where Orlando just gets super hot again. I think then you should probably look to uh, get a little bit more aggressive defensively. Maybe get higher on uh, on the screens with the with the screeners defender. Um, Maybe switch. Maybe just play some different lineups. I don't know. But again, I just don't see that happening. So I wouldn't worry about it just yet. Yeah. that's And this is kind of the central uh, point of this premise is that Bud never adjusts anything. Right. So I think that, you know, some of this argument is basically like this is going to wind up falling on Bud's shoulders if this coach who's notorious for never making adjustments finds himself thrown into like the ultimate need for flexibility environment, which would be the bubble. And he's just not flexible. You decided it was time to upgrade your outdoor deck. So you got all the essentials to do it. You ordered a power washer, a set of patio chairs, and a shiny new grill. And you used your Bank of America Cash Rewards credit card, choosing to earn 3% cash back on online shopping and up to 5.25% as a preferred rewards member, which you put towards your most essential deck addition, a bird feeder. Apply for yours at bankofamerica.com slash more rewarding. Copyright 2020, Bank of America Corporation. After the trip... I drove my van back with all my equipment. I could hear a little bit of whimpering and crying. When Eldon Kidd, a father of five running rafting tours through Mexico, found two Guatemalan girls stowed away in the back of his tour van one night, it changed his life forever. They pleaded with me, can you bring us to the border? I agreed. And I thought, can I do this again somehow? From the team behind American Skyjacker comes an epic new crime series, American Coyote. Being a coyote is a dangerous and illegal business. You have to be prepared for the worst. The unbelievable tale of a legendary coyote named Eldon Kidd, American Coyote. Listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. 
So we'll have to keep an eye on that for Milwaukee. Michael, let's shift gears to a team that I mentioned at the top of the episode, and that's the Philadelphia 76ers. They seem like they're basically ready to bounce out of the bubble. They are down 0-2, blown off the court in Game 2. Embiid started strong uh, for Philadelphia in Game 2, but they just fizzled and faded. They had no real answers for Jason Tatum, who was uh, shooting smooth and electric like he has been here over the last week or so. Um, things are basically looking completely green for Boston. And in Philly, you know, we, we heard Embiid poke at Brett Brown's defensive strategy, basically saying that uh, him dropping on, um, you know, their defense is giving too many wide open looks to uh, Jason Tatum and basically saying it's too easy for Boston on offense. We heard Brett Brown questioned really directly by the Philadelphia media, essentially saying, like, why do you have any cause for hope? We heard Embiid say, well, the whole thing would be different if we were just going back to Philadelphia for game three. We mm. heard Brett Brown say, hey, in a different universe, we would just be saying, uh, you know, uh, Boston took care of business at home and now it's our turn. I mean, they're trying to use all these different slogans. Watching these games, every single player on their roster is disappointing. Embiid's been disappointing. Tobias Harris has been very disappointing. Al Horford's been disappointing. Um, the younger guys, I'm not going to really hold them to account because, you know, whatever, they're being thrown into a, a tricky mix. Um, it does feel like all of our boomer bust talk about the Sixers for the last three months has, you know, transitioned beautifully straight into a bust. And really the only, uh, you know, task now is determining how big the blast radius, right? I mean, who who all gets impacted by this thing? Yeah, uh, the Sixers are... Not very good. I think that this is a really smart angle, which is to kind of figure out where they go from here. Because, look, like, the contracts that are on the books make it so that moving Al Horford or moving Tobias Harris or, you know, there's not a lot of assets to trade, even if you wanted to attach them to one of those contracts to move off of it. Um, You could, I guess theoretically try to get off not really get off but move josh richardson uh because he's pretty valuable and you don't want to have to pay him big money when his current contract expires but he's also just like a super important contributor to a team that has no real three-point shooting and no real ball handling uh so i don't really know where they go from here uh and i i can't really blame brett brown too much i think that he's just i've kind of been consistently saying this for the entire season but he's just been dealt a really crappy hand with the players that he has and like last night uh uh you know playing a lot of lineups still with Horford and Embiid on the floor together though I will say is kind of a little bit of an indictment and maybe there were other options you could have gone to you could have gone to Furkan Korkmaz a little bit more you could have played Mike Scott uh, Alec Burks only playing 15 minutes after his really impressive game one performance was a head scratcher that was called out by the broadcast team uh, during the game. So from that perspective, I guess you could blame Brett Brown, but like the the the, the issues here go a lot deeper. And uh, well, one I, way or another, they're not listening to him. So I mean, he's going to be exact, gone. Yeah, there, yeah, there's no gone. way around that. Um, I mean, here's how bad it is. If you're trying to talk about trading. Tobias or Al Horford, you're going to have to attach assets, but they have very few interesting assets. 
I actually think the easiest way to trade Tobias Harris is to trade Joel Embiid and demand that the team taking on Embiid also takes on Harris, right? And in that scenario, then you're having to bring back a lot of a lot of money elsewhere. But like, it requires trading one of those main guys that people would actually want to get off those other contracts. So that's the kind of scope of the um, of the rebuild or the retooling effort that you're mm-hmm. looking at if you're Philly. Michael, personally, if I were them, I would trade Embiid. When you're looking ahead to the next three or four years um, in the Eastern Conference, which are going to be his prime years he is not going to be good enough to lead you to a title as the best player on a team. Kevin Durant's coming back. Giannis is looming. Toronto is just a machine at this point. And Boston is rising. And, I, you know, of course, I'm not going to overlook them. I didn't mean to snub them as the last team in that group. But I was, gonna be I was going to have to – I was about to jump in. I'm glad that you, uh, you gave them their due. Uh, yeah, it's painful, but I, I got around to it. You're just not going to be – I mean, even making the Eastern Conference Finals with Embiid as your best player, to me, is a questionable uh, proposition right now. He did not deliver on his own preseason hype. Taking over in in these kinds of environments as a center is just getting trickier and trickier year after year. They need to have tons and tons of shooting around him. They don't. His bad habits have only gotten worse, whether it's shot selection, conditioning, um, the health issues, which is not a bad habit, but it's just something that also looms. I'm just basically out on the Embiid experience, and I know he would still have uh, significant trade value. They need a drastic overhaul in Philly. It's so obvious. Everyone can see it. My my plan would be to, to try to trade Embiid and Harris, if, if possible, together, try to get back whatever shooters and as little salary cap hit as possible for the future, turn the keys over to Ben Simmons, and just pray that by trading out Embiid, you lower expectations enough that you can make the playoffs with Simmons as your best player and people will sort of salute that as a victory. And then, you know, you wait another year and try to trade Horford once his contract gets a little bit easier for another team to swallow. That would be my strategy. But I think, dude, they're stuck, man. This is a, they're bagged up in a really bad way. And I think if I was ownership, I would be seriously considering changing my front office too. I, yeah, I agree with a lot of what you said. I don't necessarily, I go back and forth between whether or not I would keep Embiid or whether or not I would keep Simmons, but I think it's just like, it's evident that the only way out of this is to trade one of them. And there's a lot of people, uh, very vocal, who are still steadfast in belief that those two can work together and win a championship. I I personally am not one of them. I don't think their games are compatible. I don't think they ever will be. Bro, it's never going to happen. I'm watching this team. I mean, they they wanted to leave the court before the game even ended last night. How are they going to win a title with these players? Come on. Yeah, no, I'm with you. And, you know, Embiid's stat line was very impressive uh, in game two, but... To me, watching it, and Stan Van Gundy, like, really hit this point home multiple times throughout the game. Like, the shots that Embiid takes are, it's like funny money. It's like, it's not real. These are just mid-range fallaways that go in. They're not, it's like, I just don't understand why he's so insistent on taking them. And, you know, credit to Boston's defense for how they how they have swarmed him and all that. But, like, yeah, some of the shots he this. takes... Yeah, yeah, let me say this. 34-10 and 10 is impressive. It's It looks okay. But his his stat line was not that impressive because he was a minus 21 in 34 minutes, and they lost the game by 27 points, right? I mean, they got smoked with him on the court. He is not even close to the best player in this series. 
Tatum is destroying him. And by the way, Embiid knows it. <laughs> yeah, no, Tatum's clearly the best player in the series. There's there's just like, it, it, yeah, it's not even close. Um, and I think it, it does speak to kind of the limitations of having a big man as your best player in today's NBA. And I think Embiid is great. I still think that from a skill and a talent perspective that he can be the best player in the world. I just, I'm increasingly negative and down on that actually happening because I mean, forget about it. I'm sorry. There's just <laughs> no possible way. This guy's got to turn his whole career around. He's got so many things he's got to change. First of all, he's got to get his body right. You know, second of all, he needs to play a higher IQ brand of basketball when it comes to decision-making shot selection, turnovers, commanding of a defense right those are so many things that he's going to have to change and this guy's been around for a while he's had time to show significant progress on these issues and he just hasn't throw on top the injury concerns throw on top how many amazing playmakers and young players there are out there right now i don't think he's even in the conversation i just think these tectonic plates, Michael, have shifted. There have been earthquakes. There was a pre-earthquake era <laughs> where Embiid was in this conversation for these kinds of things. That's that's in the past. You know, don't live in that. You know, 2018, 2019 era. It's done. Uh, Can I say? I'm not, I'm not saying his career is over. He's going to be an All-Star level player for the next seven, eight, nine years. But if you're telling me Embiid and Jokic, that used to be a conversation. There's no doubt in my mind which of those two players that I would have. If you're saying, okay, who do you have to build around in Philly, Embiid or Simmons? Simmons is not as good of a player as Embiid, but the expectations that come with Embiid and the other just baggage and body language and all that stuff we've seen this season, I would roll with Simmons if I was Philadelphia. And if they don't, I would be the first in line to try to trade for Simmons um, if I was a GM on another team and you're just saying, look, you've got Tatum on the rise, Jalen Brown on the rise, Kevin Durant coming back. Giannis is going to be Giannis. Pascal Siakam is getting better. This idea of like Joel Embiid lording over the universe is not happening. I I love this take. I, you know, part of me wants, I'm jealous that I didn't really come up with it. Uh, and I might even just like steal it in a column. Um, I hope you don't mind. <laughs> no, that's fine. I mean, you could just be like the aggregators. Just do a little via Ben Golliver, just like all sure. the aggregators, and just take sure. all my content for free. It's fine. But, no, it's, but I, I, I look just I knew, buy I, my book, Michael. That's all I ask. I know. I knew. Uh, yeah, exactly. I knew you wouldn't mind. Um, I, I, I want to. I guess like with Embiid, real quick, a question that I have that I was thinking about during last night's game that I've never really considered before is, you know, when you look at superstars, when you look at, you know, top five, top six, top seven players, what makes them, like, uh, members of that class is that they can directly and indirectly make life easier for those around them. And how does Embiid do that on the offensive end? Does he do that? I've never really, like, like, theoretically, you know, he's just this low post monster you throw him the ball it's an automatic double team he kicks it out it's a wide open three like i don't i don't know i just i i i don't really feel that way anymore particularly after watching philadelphia play uh in the bubble without ben simmons and i don't know that's pretty concerning to me uh i know this team isn't really built around him to accentuate all of his strengths but he should be, given his talent level, someone who can make those around them better. And he just doesn't really do that. 
I agree. I mean, the, the pieces around him are really tricky fits. I don't want to blame him for their entire situation. I'm being hard on him because I think the hype got really, really high at times over the last couple of years, and I just don't think it's warranted based on how he's been playing here. Um, I think his heart is generally in the right place. I do think he needs to recommit a little bit to the sport, and I do think that he just needs a change of scenery and a new voice. I just don't think him and Brett are on the same page in the same way anymore. You know, you look at some other functional coach-player relationships. I mean, Damian Lillard came out and was like, I want to play well so my coach doesn't get fired. Like, that's like actually on his mind as a philosophy. Do you think Embiid, when he's going for 35 and 10, is like, oh man, I've got to do it to save Brett Brown's job? There's just no way. I mean, that's not happening. So um, I I think uh, it's time for a major shakeup. If I was Philly, I would seriously consider um, trading him this summer. And I would also consider getting a front office that knows what it's doing. That's just throwing that out there as an, <laughs> as an idea. All right, let's shift gears here, Javier. Uh, he writes, uh, after tonight's Luka Doncic game, a thought came to my mind. I had to check with other basketball junkies who I call friends before I hit the flame switch for this take. Here comes the heater. Is Luka Doncic giving out goat vibes? Is this kid for real? Um, is is Doncic a goat? I asked all my friends. They replied like I was a prophet about to be stoned to death. But here's my follow-up. He could potentially be a top 10 all-time player by the time he finishes his career. So he's moving the goalposts within his own questions, Javier. I mean, look, trying to put Luka over MJ, it's going to be kind of a tough sell with his one career playoff win at this point, uh, which actually occurred uh, last night. Um, but uh, just six more titles to go, Michael, six more. But what is Lucas ceiling here after we've watched this? I mean, he's smashing all these records for, you know, scoring at his age. And um, he's scaring uh, the daylights out of the Clippers, kind of getting whatever he wants offensively for himself and for his teammates on behalf of Dallas. Um, Is Javier uh, out of control? Is he really this prophet being stoned by his friends? Are you ready to back him up, Michael? What's Lucas ceiling? Ooh, yeah. I, uh, (laughs) greatest of all time is... It's a little too high for me, I would say. Uh, I I think Luca is just breathlessly entertaining, and beyond his years in skill and production, and we just talked about guys who make their teammates better. Luca Doncic makes his teammates better. Um, so uh, hats off to him. I do think one thing about you know just watching the Dallas Mavericks play all season long that has been a little, like, I don't want to say this is a dig on Luca at all, but it is interesting just, like, how fine they are when he doesn't play. And you, like, look at that roster, it's not really, there's not, like, a lot of ball creators. There's not a lot of uh, uh, of guys who can initiate offense efficiently. There's there's Chris Dapps, and that's wonderful, and Chris Dapps plays really well without Luca, um, But, like, for example, in game two, when they won, Luca has five fouls, exits the game early in the fourth quarter. Typically, you know, da- like that should have been an opportunity for the Clippers to really make a run, right? And instead, like Dallas's bench just destroys and they move the ball incredibly well. Their assist rate with Luca off the floor is higher than when he's on it. Um, their offense is uh, uh, better uh, in the bubble with Luca off the floor. So these are just, you know, it's not Luca's fault that his teammates really work well together. Um, 
and it's not his fault that Rick Carlisle's bench mobs are traditionally juggernauts. But I do think it's interesting. And I, I'm like literally giving away a column that I hope to write. I'm going to pitch it as soon as this podcast is over um, on this subject. But it is something that I've been thinking about. And I, you know, I just don't, I, I don't think like this, is, I'm like tap dancing here uh, over whether or not that like if Michael Jordan would ever be in a situation where wow. when he Basically sits, what you're saying is Luca's not the GOAT. The Mavericks are better without Luca. <laughs> That's your take? Unbelievable. That, that, this is the take that I avoided uh, from saying out loud, and I don't believe it, but I, I just think it's interesting. That's all. Michael, 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 come on now. Um, look, I think first of all, we spend so much time talking about Houston's amazing system. The small ball, it's so crazy. It's so different. Dallas's system is just as effective and also just as interesting, right? Um, their space is amazing. And what's uh, what's really fun is that every once in a while, they'll just counter with Boban, just dropping him in the middle of an ocean of space <laughs> to just like take down opposing matchups every once in a while, which is just like such an interesting, uh, you know, like counter jab or whatever you want to call it. Um, but I think that you might be underselling a little bit the quality of their ball handling playmakers. Look, I am not the world's biggest uh, Trey Burke fan. I think Seth, Seth Curry is definitely an interesting player, not the world's greatest. And THJ has some shake to him off the dribble. But I think it's just a situation where like you can have those role players finding success because there is so much space and because they do play together and, and for each other. Um, you know, with the great vibe. And I give Luca a lot of credit for the vibe around that team. I mean, he's clearly their leader already. He's got an amazing competitive personality uh, and energy to him. I think it's infectious. And, you know, they're ready to rock even when he's on the bench because they have, they know exactly what they're trying to do. They're all on the same page and there's lots of room to operate. So um, I'm not hyping up any of those one individual players as like amazing, you know, like third scoring options behind uh, Luca and Porzingis. Um, but I do think they've got a number of different guys they can, you know, break down defenders off the dribble and take advantage mm-hmm. of all that paint space. Yeah, no, that's that's totally fair. Um, and I guess this is just like entirely, uh, you know, besides the point of the original question, which is can Luca be the goat? Which I, I guess yeah, I'm Javier, just gonna, chill, okay, man, I, just chill, yeah, I, I guess, not yet. <laughs> I guess but here's, I'm just going to say no, yeah. Here's the fun part about that, though. I mean, Luca comes out and, uh, you know, he's saying three more. That's his message after the game two win against the Clippers. Mm-hmm. Like, again, it's no fear factor. There's a lot of the, the same confidence that we saw in Portland is developing in Dallas. They feel like they could win this series. They don't think they're just happy to be here. I think that's an awesome mentality. And again, it starts with Luca. Porzingis had a hilarious comment essentially saying that, you know, he tells himself, like he mentally coaches himself, that he's already a champion, that he deserves to be here. And again, this is a player who's won one career playoff game now. So, you know, they're arriving maybe a little bit faster than they expected, or at least they're booking their travel uh, a little bit early. Uh, But good. Ride this wave of positivity. You know, it's rare in the NBA. You compare how happy Dallas seems to the misery of Philly or some of these other teams out there that just haven't been able to put it together. Um, You know, it's, it's a good time to be a Mavericks fan and a good time to be a Mavericks player as well. All right, let's keep this thing moving. We have a question from Brendan, and he says, you guys have got to stop with the disrespectful Nuggets dismissal. And really, Michael, he's talking to me. He says, I would understand (laughs) if you only spoke about the true contenders, but you guys spend ages discussing your cute stories like Portland, Dallas, and Boston. Well, we have talked about those guys a lot. 
He continues, Denver is an exciting young team who will make a much bigger impact than Portland or Dallas, yet those teams get all your attention. Yes, the Nuggets have had defensive issues in the bubble, but so have all these teams. I'm not saying that they can win the title, but if they get the full starters back, Jokic is phenomenal, Murray enjoys the big stage, Millsap is a solid defensive veteran, if MPJ can keep shooting to cause headaches, Torrey Craig and hopefully Gary Harris will be able to defend the wings and knock down threes, and then you've got a nice picture altogether. If they're firing on all cylinders, this team can challenge the Clippers no worries. So it's a, a strong argument for Brendan on mm. behalf of what I assume is his uh, his favorite team. Um, unfortunately, right after he sent this email, they gave up 120 plus to the Jazz, <laughs> and now that series is even. I do think that their defensive issues are different than every team in the bubble's defensive issues. Like I think it's obviously injury related. They don't have their starting wings, but that depth at that spot is just killing them. And, um, you know, I, I'm not sure what their counter is. I mean, isn't this just sort of like a endless Christmas for Donovan Mitchell going against the Denver Nuggets? Yeah. I, I, first of all, I want to say that the Celtics aren't a cute story. I just I have to. There's like a, a, a part of me that wouldn't be able to sleep at night if I didn't speak up and just and swat that down real quick. I cannot um, wait for the Raptors to knock them out in the second <laughs> round. I just cannot <laughs> wait for that to happen. But continue. That's when I'm going to go on vacation, by the way. So find a guest host. Um, <laughs> Thanks I, <laughs> for the warning. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I mean, the Denver Nuggets have the worst defense in the bubble. And so, I mean, you can't just like gloss over that. And there are reasons for it, as you mentioned, like Will Barton leaving the bubble, not being around. Gary Harris, who might have been pound for pound their best defender uh, during the regular season and, and last year, too. Uh, he is uh, out. Uh, I don't even know why he's out, to be honest with you, but he's not playing. Uh, Paul Millsap on the defensive end, you know, Paul Millsap just like he has these moments of you're like, oh, that's he's like this is underrated Paul Millsap. And then there are moments where you're like, this is a guy who is clearly on the downswing of his career. Um so you kind of are just rendered with, you know, Tory Craig and PJ Dozier and these lineups that have Jeremy Grant a little bit out of position. Michael Porter Jr. is their leading scorer in the bubble. And also, like, arguably, I don't know, I sent this text to someone a couple days ago, and I don't know if it's too hot for the podcast, but I'm just going to say it anyway. I think Michael Porter Jr. might be the worst defender in the bubble. And so when you have to play him and you're Mike Malone and he's kind of giving you so much offense and he's shooting the hell out of the ball and um, just he's been incredible in a lot of different ways. But his defense is just you can really attack him uh, on and off the ball. So I think there are issues yeah, he, here. He struggles to slow both opposing wings and germs equally. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so like. Jamal Murray's offense uh, at times in this playoff series has been just scintillating. And, you know, when he goes basket for basket against Donovan Mitchell, it's like truly been some of the most entertaining basketball that we've seen uh, so far in the playoffs early on. Let me but, ask you, though, um, sure. has Murray given you a little Trey Young vibes where it's like, I'm really excited for your points, but like, can we can we like keep track of how many you're personally giving up on the other end and just kind of like use that to kind of counterbalance and maybe like, you know, adjust? It's almost like a currency exchange rate where like 
he's just balling out, but then on the other end, he's just giving it all back. I don't know. No, I, I think Jamal Murray is in a different class defensively than Trey Young. I get what you're saying for sure. Um, and he's hurt by the fact that some of the guys who, uh, you know, he's, I mean, he's been a participant in some really good defensive lineups, but just when those pieces aren't there, there's just this domino effect where he has to guard different players that he normally wouldn't. And so he looks worse than I think he is, if that makes any sense. Um, but yeah, like you're just, you're missing too many pieces to be, I guess, like, like, I don't want to completely discount the nuggets, but I'm also saying like, in response to the end of that email where the Nuggets can handle the Clippers, that's just not not in this universe. That's not happening. Right, and I, I think that there was some ifs baked into his explanation, and like mm-hmm. Gary Harris is a gigantic if, and if he comes back and plays like he played in February, then okay. Like I'm, I'm more interested in this argument, Brendan. If not, and they continue to give up 120-plus to Utah, which has not been the world's most incredible offense at any point this season, I would be pretty nervous if I were them. And I think that's going to be a long series, one that I'm getting more interested in. We had another question from Morgan who says, Hey, Ben, I know you said you wouldn't talk about the Nuggets and Jazz, but Donovan Mitchell did score 57 points, uh, and Jamal Murray was going off too. Couldn't you try to talk about it a little bit? Okay, Morgan, I feel you. I feel you. I hear you guys out there. Um, The game one was truly sensational, um, back and forth stuff. But also keep in mind here, um, from the Jazz's perspective, like Mike Conley re-entering into a series where nobody can guard anybody and he can hit open threes playing off of Mitchell, I feel like that's arguably an even bigger threat uh, if you're Denver. I don't know. Are you ready to to pick Utah in this series by any chance, Michael? Or how are you feeling after seeing these teams go back and forth for two games? I honestly still have no feel whatsoever because the way... Actually, that you- I, I agree. And I, I don't like to be the takesman who says I don't know, but... I don't know on this one. No, like in game two, Jordan Clarkson is just a fireball. And so, you know, thinking that that is going to sustain itself and carry over, I'm I'm not going to be that person. Um, On the other hand, like Utah looks really good. Mitchell looks incredible. And the way he's getting buckets, the way he's setting up teammates, um, the ball movement that Utah is showing is is very impressive and so like and i i just want to real quickly like also shout out uh rudy gobert who on these pick and rolls when he catches the ball at around the free throw line and he needs to make a decision as a passer he's just like like i know he's not Jokic, but he made this one wrap around left-handed pass to the corner to a shooter i forget who it was that was just like that was very Jokic esque, and I didn't know he had that type of vision or ability in him. So if he's making passes like that, it just opens up the offense uh, completely and gives them more dimensions. Uh, so I do like the Jazz maybe a little bit more than I did before the series started, but like I don't want to disrespect Jokic. I don't want to disrespect. Uh, I'm trying to think of like who the second best player is on Denver, and I I, I don't even know. So. Um, maybe I am leaning jazz. I don't even know, man. Yeah. Um, I think it does, you know, kind of go back to Jokic here. He needs to reassert himself. Uh, Gobert won that matchup in game two in ways that I didn't really expect. So, um, you know, pressure falls to him and, uh, you know, I think, uh, he's got some help. I mean, they, they've definitely been able to score the ball pretty well overall. Um, I think that the biggest question for this entire series just comes down to Denver's defense. Can they get back to respectable? If not, I think they're going home. I think it's uh, it's that level of bad. 
All right, we're going to close up uh, here quickly with two uh, questions just about the bubble. Ryan says, one of the many unusual byproducts of playing in a bubble is that it allows players to attend other games. Do you think it's an advantage for players to watch their potential playoff opponents live action? I know teams have advanced scouts and that players sift through tons of tape in preparation for each series, but I'm wondering if you think being able to scout teams live could help players in the playoffs. We haven't seen a ton of this in the playoffs. It seems like the teams are much more locked into their um, their own schedules, Ryan. Uh, guys here and there may be going to attend like a former teammates game, something like that. I'm not really seeing like, you know, guys showing up with iPads, you know, breaking down clips in real time as they're watching these games. Um, I think that uh, they're so used to watching opponents on TV. They're probably doing that from the comfort of their hotel room. And they're also probably trying to get downtime, um, you know, in the course of their own series. I have seen a number of executives do it. You know, Sean Marks was out there scouting uh, Sixers Celtics last night. Maybe he's trying to put together a Joel Embiid trade offer. Who knows? I mean, you know, that's completely me fabricating that. But, um, you know, he he was there taking it in for himself. Maybe he's expecting that they're going to upset uh, you know, Toronto, and he wants to have a, a first look at Brooklyn's second round opponent. Sure. Um, Sam Presti has been living in the gym, Michael. He's been at game after game after game after game. And so you're seeing a few rival executives taking look at other teams in person. Um, but for the most part, the the player uh, uh, turnout has been lower at the playoff games than it was, you know, during the seeding games. And I would also say just the feel on campus has been quieter in general. It's almost like a you know a switch flipped for the playoffs, and all of a sudden a lot of the the goofy games and all that stuff mm-hmm. that was going on, everything just kind of settled down. Everybody got into this like kind of more professional. It's like the you know summer's over type of vibe. School's back on. That's how it felt uh, here in the bubble once the the playoffs started, and we'll see if that's how it continues. But I do think some of these teams are you know and, and coaches especially are facing legit pressure with these series. I mean, there are expectations hanging over these teams. And so it's only natural that I think people are kind of getting a little bit more buttoned up. There aren't really enough hours in the day to uh, to scout a current opponent in a playoff series. So, I mean, first of all, it's really not even the player's responsibility to deal with this sort of thing. So them letting their mind wander to a different potential opponent while they're in the middle of a, of a battle against someone else. I just, I don't think that would be smart. It doesn't surprise me at all that executives are like, you know, looking forward and, and uh, attending games and scouting players and getting a feel for just the general competition because that's their job. It reminds me of, you know, in summer league, when you see just everybody sitting in the gym, watching games from sundown to sunup or sun up to sundown. <laughs> That's probably the more accurate uh, description. But um, but yeah, so I, I don't really think that a player, it would be beneficial at all for a player to watch uh, a, another series in person. Like, I, do, I just don't think that um, letting your mind wander to something else when you really need to be 100% locked in on your current matchup would do you any good. Yeah, and they have practices and shoot-arounds that they've got to deal with as well. So, I mean, they they have busy days here, and there are no extra days off. It should also be mentioned. Teams are playing every other day throughout the playoffs, so um, their schedules are pretty tight. Um, last question here, Tommy says, I've been so pleased to see how players have more space on the sidelines and end lines to go for balls that are going out of bounds while not being interfered with by fans and media members sitting on the floor during these bubble games. I understand that stadiums and teams are trying to squeeze as many people as they can and get as much money as they can, but man, wouldn't it be better if guys weren't restricted to such a small space 
where they run the risk of injury colliding with camera equipment, NBA owners, or mouthy fans on the basketball court? Great question from Tommy. Michael, have you noticed that too? Uh, I think so. I mean, honestly, it hasn't really, it didn't really come into my mind when I was watching these games. I guess like, you know, we always talk about the camera, the cameramen and women who sit along the baseline and the potential for serious injury. I think one thing that one play that comes to mind is uh, at the end of the 2016 finals when LeBron almost dunked uh, Draymond Green into oblivion and then kind of landed on the baseline and he crashed into a camera operator and was like, oh my God, is LeBron okay? That was just like a really high profile moment where you're kind of just like, why are these guys sitting here? Um, But I haven't really seen players behaving differently because of it i still think that it's like high octane you know they'll, they'll die for loose balls regardless they'll dive into the stands regardless um and frankly like i kind of miss the energy that's created by those uh quote unquote mouthy fans who sit uh who sit courtside um you know they bring a different type of energy and maybe more so in the past when they all weren't like fortune 500 ceos but um, but no, I haven't really like noticed anything too different besides just the obvious. Yeah, I mean, I think it looks cleaner in person and on TV without having people there. Um, but I also agree that this is never going to change. You know, the NBA does make lots and lots of money off of those seats and the proximity for them. They're trying to bring people as close as possible. So I think, Tommy, enjoy it while you've got it like this. And I, I haven't noticed a major change in player behavior either. Um, you know, I think they're, they're chasing basketballs either way, but I do like the safety factor that's involved here where they don't have to worry about, you know, trying to land properly or knocking a beer out of someone's hands or, you know, you know, having their uh, tailbone land on a camera and, you know, double over in pain. Uh, I think it's a, you know, a better basketball experience, just a cleaner basketball experience here. But ultimately, like this sport is not just about basketball. It's about the entertainment factor and all the money it can generate and everything else. And we will be going back to a world where, uh, you know, you can heckle uh, from, you know, you can heckle heckle that Sixers bench from 10 feet away, Michael, uh, once you get the opportunity, say in in 2022. (laughs) And I think on that note, we should wrap this thing up, Michael. Guys, you can email us openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. I'm sure we said something today that's going to come back and bite us 24 hours later. That's how it works in the playoffs. So let us know what it was push back on any of our takes, defend your favorite player, um, you know, last shout at Michael, whatever you want to do, we're trying to hear it. Michael, they can find us on Apple Podcasts by searching for Open Floor. That's two words. When they find our page, scroll down, it will say rate and review, tap five stars. It's just that easy to help us spread the word. Now, Michael's on Instagram at Michael Villas and Victor Pina. He's also on Twitter, same handle, Michael Villas and Victor Pina. I'm on Instagram at Ben.Golliver on Twitter at Ben Golliver. If you go to my Twitter page, you will find a link to pre-order a book. It's called Bubble Ball. I will be documenting my journey and my stay down here in the NBA's Orlando bubble uh, for the next three months. That book will come out next May. I'm pretty excited about it. Uh, I'm working with Abrams Press on it. If you could pre-order it, it would certainly help me a lot. Um, I will be donating uh, a big chunk of uh, the pre-order money uh, to charity uh, just as a, a show of gratitude for everyone out there who's supporting the project. So uh, more details to come on that, but uh, please go ahead and give that a look. All right, Michael, until next week, I'll talk to you. Talk soon, Ben. Talk soon, Ben.